this year I want to touch on this point of uh, the World Humanitarian Summit uh, and why it neglects to reinforce the obligation of states to uphold and implement the humanitarian and refugee laws which they have signed up to. Why you thought it was the case? Can you tell our listeners about that a little yeah. bit? So the World Humanitarian Summit is, for me, it's an indicator of a much bigger problem that we're facing in, in, in humanitarianism and, and humanitarian action. Mm. So when we were talking last week about well, the changing... In a way, it's a symptom of the, exactly. of the bigger problem exactly. rather than a solution. Exactly. So this, this changing ecologies of war and humanitarianism, the World Humanitarian Summit, for me, is, a, is an indicator of the, of the shortcomings of the system that we, that we, uh, that we see today. So for MSF, we were extremely uh, uncomfortable with going to sit in a conference where, firstly, the outcomes were predetermined, <laughs> uh, with states, the majority of whom are funding humanitarian action, are also complicit in the bombing of hospitals. Of um, so we've seen four out of five permanent members of the Security Council that have been involved in different military coalitions mm -hmm. that have bombed MSF hospitals mm -hmm. alone in the mm -hmm. last uh, six months, and states that are, including the host, uh, the host state, uh, involved in uh, the refoulement, the pushing back of refugees, mm -hmm. uh, and the inability of refugees mm -hmm. to seek to seek safety and and uh, and refuge, particularly in in the case of uh, of Syria. So, it seemed to us to be uh, to be very problematic for an NGO, uh, and and again, it's about limits and and roles and responsibilities. MSF is not a state, of course. Um, and for us as an NGO to be put on the same level in terms of the expectations of what we would bring mm -hmm. to this conference. Mm -hmm as states that are mandated mm -hmm. and legally bound to be upholding these norms, mm -hmm. for us was problematic. So we, uh, we wanted to, to see very clear commitments and recommitments from states in terms of, of international humanitarian law, refugee, mm -hmm. refugee law, the basics that frame uh, some of the work that we are able to do or not. Um, and we didn't want to see us uh, as an NGO being put on, on, on the same level in terms of responsibility. Of and I mean, one of the things which is a bit outside of this region, but MSF encountered it very strongly, was actually during the Ebola outbreak exactly. in, uh, in West Africa, where we saw a complete abdication of state responsibility mm -hmm. and a complete reliance on NGO. Uh, Why NGOs is that like dangerous MSF? though to the citizens of these states? It's dangerous because uh, because states have have responsibilities that are are go beyond what a, a medical organization can do. I mean, we're we're there to provide treatment and save lives today. We don't have the long term thinking um, mm -hmm. that 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 can go with that, which is a, is a responsibility of the state. There's also an issue about resources. Uh, mm -hmm. States and particularly donors, big donors, when it came to the Ebola crisis. They were not willing to 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 uh, to resource the the response uh, because they they took a distance from from being uh, responsible until the first white patient was taken from West Africa into Europe exactly. into uh, into America and then it became a, a national security issue. Yeah, yeah. So then what we saw was not uh, necessarily uh, you know a responsibility to address an epidemic that would affect all of us, but uh, a response that was driven by state national interest and national security exactly. interest. And I think when, and it's it's also part of, of the problem of the World Humanitarian Summit is the is that when responses are driven by national security interests of states that are outside of this uh, of this of this region and who have political stakes in the outcomes of conflict or population movement, mm. we don't see the kind of response that will address people's immediate needs. And this is something that that was refreshing about our discussions last week mm -hmm. is that we were a group of people that MSF is lucky in a sense that we have managed through our funding 
not to rely on donors from governments. So mm -hmm. 90, uh, more than 90% of our funds come from private individuals. This is a luxury in the so sense... So not subject to the politics of each exactly, country. That, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's different political factors, of course, that's, that will influence of uh, MSF, just like any, <clears throat> any other functioning organization, dynamic organization that, as Omar says, is, is evolving over time. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that we can, to a large extent, exclude is being, uh, being influenced to, uh, to a large extent by these donor policies and discussions. So that allowed us, I think, to be very critical of the current state of, of the humanitarian system um, and the implications of, of different state policies and what that means for conflict medicine, what that means for the ability of, of health providers to work in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in conflict environments. So Omar, uh, tell me about the relaunch of the conflict and medicine program. Why is it necessary now? Yes. What, what urged you? So it's the it's the the the, the conflict medicine program is uh, I guess it's it, it it was almost we had a we had a, a soft launch of this program in the conference because we thought we actually hurried this uh, launch partly to make it more timely and uh, and. And in tune with what's with, with the conversation, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been even any better time to do that. Uh, and it's a it's a it's part of the uh, strategic health initiative that has been recently launched by the uh, the the AUB the new AUB administration uh, that is trying to really realign the work of the university within a broader vision, within mm -hmm. a more kind of concrete vision in relationship to the responses mm. to the what's happening in the region and also building a kind of AUB as a hub of knowledge and expertise okay. uh, in in the region in relationship what to, to what's going on I mean as a as a and I as I really earlier suggested that you know because of the, our specific history because of our uh, kind of almost 150 years AUB celebrating mm. its 150 mm. years uh, this year, so that whole history has um, a capital in many ways, and a knowledge capital, uh, symbolic capital, physical uh, presence capital in the region. This whole thing allows us to at least be able to co be commentators and also participating in redefining de defining what we see is wrong and what we think is needs to be to be happening here. So the conflict medicine program uh, is a uh, is one of Different initiatives that will be launched, hopefully at okay. AUB over the next uh, the next year, uh, and uh, it is the first one to be launched actually, and and partly because of its urgency, and partly because we actually had have already uh, uh, um, uh, between me and Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta, mm -hmm. who is we both are co co coordinating this mm -hmm. this program. We had already had a five year long kind of project of research that has been ongoing, nice. which has been mainly documenting the, 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 the broader ramification of war injuries. Mm. So we're looking at uh, mm. patients with uh, different war wounds or uh, conflict-related wounds, mm. and of course partly from the practice-oriented aspect from Dr. Abu Sitta, he's a clinician, he's an mm -hmm. incredible re uh, plastic surgeon, mm -hmm. reconstructive surgeon, mm -hmm. who really, I think, has been redefining the field okay. in this part of the world. Nice. Uh, and uh, Abu Sitta has, for example, worked in Gaza during the, the Israeli bombing, he'd, he'd, he'd been in Iraq during the 1990s, he's responded to, to in, in, in Lebanon in 2006, even before he came to AUB. He's been a surgeon who, you know, on the move, 
move, dealing with uh, the kind of immediate physical ramification of, of, of injured uh, civilians and people who are uh, combatants in many ways, okay. uh, partly because, you know, that's, that's, that's the right, is it the right here, is everyone to, should have at least uh, an um, uh, uh, equal access to care, regardless of their mm -hmm. affiliations. So that's a principle that, you know, international humanitarian law principle that everyone needs to have that kind of right. So, so we already have had a, 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 an incredible project that is, has evolved and in a way merged into this launch of the conflict medicine program. And uh, partly because we've been following uh, the stories and the, the kind of the medical, epidemiological and social kind of dimensions of stories of patients coming into AUB from different parts of the uh, the region seeking healthcare for their wounds. So we took the wound as as even not only a literal uh, story of injury, but also as a uh, um, as a lens into uh, understanding the broader transformations in the region. The, the so so in a way, looking at how these wounds have got, how wounding also is happening, mm -hmm. what kind of weaponries mm -hmm. are creating certain kind of injuries, what kind of injury, then, then that injury, it's mobility, it's movement, mm -hmm. it's, so, it's social dimension, the way people care for each other, uh, the way treatment is available or not, the way a wound acquires a political value because you are injured from one side and not the other side. All of this was part of a work that we've been developing at least here at AUB and in a way became the kind of without the pillars, uh, the pillar kind of uh, um, um, infrastructure architecture for this new project of uh, conflict medicine. So, so we are very excited of the potential of this. And as soon as we launch this, we already have. It just made sense to to people like MSF to uh, to other organizations, and we're getting now uh, interesting. Uh, interests in collaborations with different uh, uh, civil society but also humanitarian sector um, to develop this into a, a really uh, evidence-based uh, project that will hopefully evolve uh, into something bigger. This is and what I want to ask, how is this going to be accessible to the public? The yes. years of accumulation of experience that you spoke about. Yes. How would this be accessible outside uh, the AUB holes? Yes. More than to the general public. Yes. So I think I think this is a very good question. Partly because as a as a as a program, what we want this to do is not just about research and publishing and all of that, but the research is what informs everything else. Because mm -hmm. that's kind of what we need in this region. Is not really just to to, to uh, pontificate on things from afar, but actually have clear uh, research-based evidence on what's going on, at least have uh, models, new models to emerge out of real empirical realities. Uh, so this is one. The second part of this is that we have already began questioning some of the, let's say, so our, our, our public is not just the people in the streets, but also the practitioners mm -hmm. who are dealing with this. We are also very medical-oriented, where we have medical-oriented and clinical outcomes that we are rethinking. For example, we are now rethinking the, the way, ways, uh, protocols of dealing with war injuries have been in place uh, for a long time and haven't been questioned in the in the context of the emerging wars. We believe that actually some of these protocols have been uh, contributing to further 
the deterioration of, of the wound in everyday's experiences. Okay. Uh, uh, so what we're doing, we're questioning clinical protocols that have been that have been kind of uh, in place for a long time, okay. partly because the na changing nature of conflict requires a changing nature of response. Okay. And conflict medicine is the kind of... Uh, Kind of space now we think that will will be able to to uh, ask some of these questions and redefine them. One of the main things about conflict medicine, at least, and this is hopefully we have uh, we can uh, elaborate on this, Jonathan and I, is that if you if you look at the history of war and medicine, uh, most of the responses to to war injuries and all these kind of traumas and afflictions that happen in war had been. A, a, a privilege of the military institutions. So any country, and when they go into war, they have their own military institutions that deal with war trauma and, and all of that. This doesn't happen anymore, at least in our region, partly because countries like uh, Iraq and Syria, you have a whole infrastructure and healthcare system has been demolished, uh, partly because the state is involved in, in, in actually fighting against uh, non-state uh, other, orga other organization and militias. So the majority of, of injuries, of war injuries, is being treated in civilian and humanitarian settings. So, so and, and, and in terms of medical education, medical training of doctors, this needs to be rethought. If you are going to be studying medicine in Iraq, you need to have in your curriculum a very clear uh, guidelines and curricula and uh, so programs. So you can just import it from the West. That exactly, the West. exactly, exactly. The, the medicine medicine becomes a locally practiced problem. And, 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 and these are the things that people need to develop knowledge mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. because that's kind of their reality. Medicine is not just a, 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 universal, a universal thing. It's a, it's a field... Uh, to 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 respond to Practice. local needs of populations, and this is where we think, at least within this kind of conflict framework, I know it probably it's it's, it's a much uh, very vague and uh, could be very, it could be understood as very vague, but but actually we think it's so important in dealing with not only just the the clinical aspect, but also the health system aspect, mm -hmm. how health systems are being redefined mm -hmm. in places like Iraq, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Syria, even Jordan, Yemen, uh, uh, how is that being completely uh, uh, reformulated uh, around these questions of people moving into one from one health system to the other, uh, uh, putting burden on one place, uh, the degradation of infrastructures in one place leading to a long-term effect on, on the other hand. All of these problems are not being addressed, I think, properly in, 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 in the current frameworks that we deal with in the region. And the humanitarian kind of uh, uh, response or the humanitarian medicine, if I may, if I may call it, is, is only the tip of the iceberg of, of these problems. Because at the end of the day, what the humanitarian medicine is interested in is saving lives maybe and uh, improving kind of access to, to care to a certain kind of population. But on the long run, the bigger uh, part of this iceberg is... Is, is what what will stay in this region so how, grassroot level. and the grassroots level so I think uh, part of what this conflict medicine program aims to do is partly to disseminate knowledge mm -hmm. uh, around about this research to all a lot of stakeholders who are involved in this policy 
clinical protocols, guidelines uh, around these issues, and 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 I think that is definitely an important thing. Uh, the other aspect is just to begin to reorient uh, the understanding of people who are living in these places around the risks of, let's say. Uh, overuse of antibiotics mm -hmm. uh, and how is that has mm -hmm. this long-term effect on mm -hmm. and I think I think that we will see a lot of activities uh, internationally now around the issue of multi-drug resistance bacteria and right. which is a big problem in the region partly because of the injuries that right. are become have become right. an epidemic right. uh, because of these wars you know so we have a lot of things to think about a lot of uh, uh, building to to do uh, uh, defining a new architecture is not that easy it's a uh, it's, it's also very exciting because it's because for us this is our kind of work coming into uh, into motion exactly and i think because it allows us now to be able to say what we want to say and mm -hmm. think about the right things in a way without having to be uh, pressured also by 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 outside entities but actually work on an equal partnership with others uh, to say you know what we actually have this and then we can work with you on this not that not the kind of uh, uh, top down uh, you know we have we want to do yeah. a project on this and yeah. you should do it for yeah. us because yeah. you are the academic organization yeah. we need to have a little bit more of a of a real intellectual conversation. So you're really configuring the whole field as well. Exactly, uh, exactly. I wanted to ask you, are you guys dealing as well with psychological injuries or just physical injuries and disease? Exactly, no, this is definitely part of the... the uh, we look at mainly, at least in, the, in our broad definition, we look at the physical, psychological, and social dimensions of injury. Uh, and that basically is broad enough to allow us to be... to redefine injury in different kind of ways and also uh, approach the different, uh, you know, uh, uh, clinical, mm. uh, individual, and social uh, uh, issues that has to do nice. with this. And I think on the, even on the long run, we need to think about uh, uh, these societies' infrastructures. If mm -hmm. we have populations emerging from these conflicts mm -hmm. that are going to be disabled, uh, with, with, with high rates of disability in cities that are already uh, destroyed, how do you gonna be building this urban infrastructure? What about redefining trauma to fit the, the, the place and the area? And exactly. The trauma yes. exactly. is different exactly. than trauma in the West and so on. Exactly. That's exactly why we are using this idea of the wound. Because at least in our region, I mean, this is something I've written about a little bit, the idea of the wound as in Arabic, jurah. Mm -hmm. is, a, is a word that people use in so many different kind of incarnations. True. So it could be something that an insult, it could be something that uh, a, a, a community, a loss of land, mm -hmm. it could be a loss of individual mm -hmm. person, it could be mm -hmm. a physical injury, mm -hmm. it could be uh, also some kind of emotional uh, traumas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to also think not to medicalize, too much medicalize uh, our societies as being in a as, as being traumatized, mentally ill, or PTSD. These kind of terms, I think, have evolved and developed in certain kind of places. Right. But uh, in, 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 in our societies, we need to find more um, uh, locally relevant ways to understand the, the, not only the individuality of trauma, but its sociality. Mm -hmm. How trauma or, the wo or wounding and wounds 
exist within a kind of a, a, a social relations, within political kind of dimensions, within historical ways of understanding mm-hmm. trauma and exclusion. And how the particular culture deals with trauma. Exactly, exactly. How, uh, you know, how, how culturally uh, grounded in, in, in history mm-hmm. and how, how trauma is something that is a culturally grounded notion mm-hmm. and history and it may be not even necessarily to be thought through as a just by giving pills and, exactly. and, and dealing with them through this kind of idea of a, of a magic bullet of, of uh, you know, you, you're traumatized from war, then we give you a pill, that will solve the, problem. Will solve the problem. Because I think the, the issue is here is much bigger and I think we need to develop a new language uh, that is relevant locally to, to, uh, to, these, uh, to these issues. No, I'm wanting to come back on, on, on part of that because I think the, the other key issue is uh, the, how these wounds are generated in the changing nature of warfare mm-hmm. as well and the broader exactly. sense of the wounds. So mm-hmm. the, 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 and that's where I, I think what's, what's so important is bringing back the political context, political military uh, warfare context mm-hmm. into the generation mm-hmm. of, these, mm-hmm. uh, of these injuries in all of their spectrum, as, as Omar said, so not just the physical wound but the, the, the other aspects as well. And that's where I think understanding this changing nature of warfare is such a critical, uh, critical element of this as well. So it's, it's taking, a, a, taking the very medical outcomes of some of these, uh, some of these issues and understanding yeah, how, they, how this is being generated. And when, we're talking, when we talk about changing nature of warfare, I think it's, it's also important to, to mention that I mean, warfare is constantly evolving, but it's not necessarily new. So there's no, I mean, the, the, the nature of warfare is always going to be, uh, war, war is never clean, so there's, there's, a, there's an element of, of historical reality that of course we have to keep in mind, but then we also have to acknowledge the, the kind of unique moment that we're living in today uh-huh. with the convergence of different factors, uh-huh. so we've been discussing a lot the, the fact of how we're seeing uh, wars being fought with you know, less boots on the ground, for drones, example, uh, drones, special forces, exactly. uh, yeah. so special forces that do night raids, mm-hmm. uh, drone, uh, drone warfare, uh, yeah, less kind of physical presence mm. of troops mm. on the ground, and this changes as well the, the ecology, if you mm. like, of mm. how healthcare is provided mm. in those environments. Mm. So in the past, we had, uh, for example, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, military occupying forces seeing healthcare provision as a kind of way to legitimize the state. So mm. the state was so health in Afghanistan was a perfect example where money was poured into to hospitals, uh, health facilities because it was seen as a way to, to boost the state's legitimacy and mm. therefore win support for the state mm. away from the opposition. But now when we see these troops withdrawing and going into the sky using, uh, using drones and, and special forces more and more, we see how there's a shift in relationship between these military forces and the healthcare provision mm. in the sense mm. that now healthcare that is provided to the terrorist enemy is seen as a way as a kind of unacceptable benefit to the to so the. So it's dehumanizing the other even further. Exactly, exactly. So this is this is part of that that ecology that I think is so so critical to understand because that then impacts on how do we treat how do we provide uh, treatment in those kinds of environments when when we're seen by potentially the the, the military forces as this kind of unacceptable mm. supporter risk uh, factor or benefit to the to the enemy. So so tell me something. If 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 population is held hostage under ISIS. Mm. Aren't these population worthy of 
medical assistance. Absolutely. Yeah. And what what is your position on such case? Exactly. So this is the, this is the core of the core of the issue because everyone is some is a terrorist to someone, right? So so there's no there's no way to to have a certain definition about terrorism right. so or the, terrorist or exactly. So the moment we start defining the provision of healthcare according to the the classification of that community. Mm. That is exactly what actually the, the, the US and others are, are promoting. They're promoting the, through the counter-terrorism legislation mm. that we see. They're, they're setting the limits of what is acceptable provision of humanitarian mm. assistance mm. or healthcare provision. And the moment you step beyond that, that line, it becomes a material support to terrorism or an unacceptable benefit to the, to the enemy. Mm. And the moment those demarcations are, are set, then we lose a core of, of healthcare and conflict, which, which you mentioned earlier, which is the impartial treatment of, of whoever, regardless mm -hmm. of whether they're a combatant, a civilian, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. terrorist, an insurgent, I mean, whatever mm -hmm. label you want to put on people, at the end of the day, the label that can't be missing is patient. Because as <laughs> because humans, uh, you must be impartial. Yeah. Exactly. And not dehumanize one person. Exactly. Because then, I mean, that process of, of dehumanizing or buying into that logic, mm -hmm. then it, 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 it eliminates the possibility of healthcare providers mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to function. I mean, mm -hmm. You can't function in, in, a, in, a, in these kinds of conflicts with a, with a, by serving the agenda of one party or another to, to a conflict. And I think that's where this, this changing nature of, of, of war is is such a critical uh, element for us to understand as it impacts on, on uh, healthcare provision and the kinds of, of social wounding, uh, physical yes. wounding that we see around that. Because then if you're wounded as a terrorist uh, in any form of, of, uh, of wounding, how then do you access the, the kind of healthcare that you, uh, that you need? Mm -hmm. um, and the barriers that are in the way to reach that, mm -hmm. that healthcare. Mm -hmm. Both direct barriers, whether mm -hmm. it's you know, checkpoints or drone strikes, Both. But also the, the legal barriers in some cases in terms of, of counter-terrorism legislation, mm -hmm. all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the systemic barriers of, uh, of the dismantling of the health system in some areas, um, as Omar has, has done work on as well, the, the kind of sanctions regimes that are in place and what that does to health systems and then the ability of patients to access those, those health systems. So all of these components can't be... You can't just look today at the. Well, I don't think you ever could, but but today is is is, is and, and the exciting thing about what Omar and others are thinking about is you can't just look at the patient on the table uh, anymore. I mean, you have to understand and, and engage with with the, the, the full, uh, uh, full context around that. Yeah. 